there's three things that you need to be successful at anything you do. Knowledge and experience, the opportunity, and then you need the money. The cheat code and entrepreneurship and businesses come to the table with one and partner with the people that have the other two. If you're going to try to figure it out on your own, you're going to spend way more time, energy, effort. You're going to have a lot more failures, a lot more frustration, and you might quit. In the real world, it should be no. Let me go pay this guy who's already failed because I have no idea how much time I'm going to lose, how much money I'm going to lose if I try to figure it out on my own. I know he's going to help me or she's going to help me avoid pitfalls that I might not even see coming. And that's my shortcut to success. Everybody want to get the bag, but y'all really know what it's going to take. Trying to figure out how to start now. Blue chills, trying to show you the way. Because we're top finders and them up shots and anything it takes to get real estate. We've been grinding all day, finding ways to get paid. Better hop on this wave because we're dropping blue chills. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems. Let's go. Another Let's episode go. of Blue hey, Gems with Hyper Chris Senegal. Yes, We're sir. out in Houston town. Your hometown right now, right? Welcome, welcome to the great state of Houston. Let's go. <laughs> so, man, give us a rundown on your story. How are you so successful? What are you doing in STR business? All that good stuff. Yeah, man. So I grew up in a town called Port Arthur, Texas, not too far from here, small town. Uh, I was the smartest kid in the class. I was also the class clown. <laughs> I also became a dad at 16. Mm. So yeah, I had my son when I was 16, but wow. you know, thankfully I didn't use it as an excuse. I used it as motivation. He just graduated from University of Houston on full academic scholarship. Dude, wow. Congrats, yeah, congrats. Yeah. So he's doing private wealth management now. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. But during that journey, man, going to college, you know, everybody said be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. I said, I'm smart. Engineer's the only one that takes four years. I'm going to do that one. <laughs> so I went to college on full academic scholarship, got a job working for the railroad, moved to Memphis, Tennessee. They put me on this $100 million project. It was me and my boss, who was a black lady, and they had us like all over the company websites, like all the diversity brochures. She was making six figures. I was like 22, making like 80 grand. I bought a house. And every day I went to work, I was fucking miserable. Yeah. And I was like, man, I've been sold the dream. This corporate stuff is not for me. And so I just started reading books and I was like, okay, what's going to be my early exit strategy out of this? And the real estate just kept coming up. Every book I read is like the easiest way to create first generational wealth is through real estate. And so that's how I got started. Started flipping houses back in 2008 in the recession when everybody was scared of real estate. Just like right now, it was the perfect time to get in because there'll be a whole lot of discounted inventory, yeah. a lot of things like that. So it just so happened one of my frat brothers worked for Homevestors. He was their property manager and uh, they had a bunch of inventory that they couldn't get rid of. So he brought me in to meet with the owners. They gave me a property that, that they didn't want to get off their books. Then I also networked with one of their contractors that was flipping, doing the renovations on 30 or 40 houses a month for him. He became my mentor, Edgar. And so he taught me how to flip my first house. I didn't even have the cash. I borrowed against my 401k because I had a corporate match. Took that first house, made it into a, a Section 8 room. Wow. And uh, got started from there, man. Just started doing more flips. I would keep the really good ones that had good cash flow. I would sell the other ones that uh, I, I could make a nice return on. After a while, I got tired of that model. It was, I had houses all over Houston. Houston's big. And I had property managers that weren't doing a good job. So I just decided I'm going to liquidate. I'm going to try to figure out a better way to do this whole thing. And so I was like, how can I control more real estate at one time without having to worry about finding one deal at a time? And crazy story, the same frat brother, Vaughn, um, he still works for Homevestors. And one of their old tenants came to him and said, hey, I want to come back and live in one of your properties because this landlord over here owns this whole block and he's a slumlord and he's on drugs. He's like 78 years old and uh, he just needs to get rid of the property. So Vaughn called me and he's like, bro, this sounds like an opportunity. So we went and sat and talked to the guy and he's like, I want half a million dollars. 
But in that time, there was no real estate activity in the neighborhood at all. I was like, well, I can't go get a loan for half a million. But if you'll become the bank for me, you, you can own a financer to me, we can make a deal. I was like, I'll make sure your mortgage payment is somewhere close to what you're getting in rent right now, but I'll take over all the headache of everything. He went for it. So in 2013, even though buy the block and all that stuff is a trendy catchphrase now, I bought the, my first block owner financed in 2013. So what made you come to this conclusion of offering this method of creative finance? I heard people do it all the time with single family homes. It's the same distressed owner that's not in a rush to be cashed out. It's just a bigger asset. Instead of it being one house, it's a whole block. It was an old grocery store and like seven houses and above the grocery store was a two, four bedroom apartment. The, the family that owned the grocery store I used to live in, actually. So this guy that was like in the 70s was like the black sheep of the family and all the other, it's crazy, the patriarch of the family that had passed away on 26 blocks in this neighborhood, bro. 26 blocks. All the rest of them were successful doctors and lawyers and he was like the, the black sheep. So that's how I got the deal. But then what that exposed me to was um, creative ways to uh, maximize rental revenue. So I wasn't doing short-term rental specifically, but I was doing single-room occupancy for parolees. So these houses, I didn't have to fix them up. Uh, I left them kind of as is, and I would rent each room out to somebody that got out of prison that had felonies where it's really hard for them to get anywhere else to live. But only nonviolent people, you know, like drugs, white-collar crimes, that type of thing. But they've been in prison 20 years. They got trades. So I got electricians, plumbers, carpenters. So anything goes wrong on the property, <laughs> they're happy to have somewhere to live. I go buy materials. They're fixing everything. Wow. Right? So Smart. I got long-term, stable tenants, and my maintenance operating overhead is low. Right? So from then, I'm like, okay, I see that there's there's ways to generate more revenue from a property than just typical rent, which is what I was doing before. So I went from that to doing some new construction projects, and then... I had an opportunity to buy a second portfolio of real estate um, same way. So husband and wife, husband had a stroke like two years before. They needed to get out the business. They didn't have the proper system set up in place for their real estate portfolio. And I tell people that all the time. We always say you're creating generational wealth when you buy real estate. You're not. You're creating financial freedom for yourself. If you don't have the right operating systems in place, your kids are going to watch you stress and watch you work from morning to night. And they're going to say, no, I want to live my own life. So when you get ready to pass that real estate on to them, they're going to be like, hell no, I don't want that. I'm going to sell so it. True. That is so, so true. So if you don't, you want your kids to inherit a ATM machine with maybe a CEO in place, a property management company in place, legal and accounting in place so that they don't have to do that work and they can live their life. They might not want to have anything to do with real estate, right? So it should be an entity that they inherit that that moves on its own. And so most of my big projects, when, when I buy blocks, it's always owner finance. It's always from heirs that have inherited property where they didn't inherit a system. And that's all I've been doing. And so with this last one, this same neighborhood where I'm doing all my projects in, there's a $2.4 billion development within a mile radius of everything I'm doing right now. It's the last historically black neighborhood in Houston. Everything around downtown Houston, even where we are now, Houston was really settled after emancipation when all the freed slaves from Galveston moved and set up these little settlements. And as Houston grew, all these little towns became annexed into the city and they renamed them as wards. So Fifth Ward is like the northeast corner of Houston. It's the last one. The biggest development project in the city is under construction right now. It's $2.4 billion. It's 150 acres. It's over a mile of waterfront property with a golf course. And it's by a development company called Midway, who's privately owned. They have another big development on the west side of Houston. And so I was like, well, hey, this is an opportunity. Real estate is the only industry where it's legal to do insider trading. When you know it's coming, you can invest all around it. 
and not get in any trouble. Wow. And so all of my projects are within a one mile radius. But this particular portfolio, I have a dual focus, right? It's making money, but it's also not gentrifying in a ne- negative aspect of displacing people. So what I realized is, hey, if I can buy a rental portfolio that's got 80, 90% occupancy, long-term tenants, some of them been there 10, 20 years, I can take the vacant one and that's where I can increase the revenue, double and triple the revenue over rent. And then that offsets the need for me to raise the rents on other tenants. So that's where the STR comes in. So now I take the vacant ones and uh, TJ, who's hosting the the Rentalpreneur Summit, is is my guy. He's helped me set up uh, the ones that I have on Airbnb. So um, these rents, $500 to $700 uh, for my long-term tenants. And these are people that, single people, single older gentlemen, older ladies, none of them on Section 8. They work at like Kroger's, Walmart, different places like that, just low-income workers, hard workers, and I don't get any trouble out of them. And, you know, most investors will say, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to go in and renovate everything and raise everybody's rent. Well, you don't have to. Number one, I tell people this too. If your business model requires you to raise their rent, that means you're a bad negotiator because you should be able to buy the asset at a price point where you get enough return on your investment at whatever price you buy it at. And if you're not a good negotiator, then the only way for you to make money is to say, hey, I overpaid for this. I have to raise your rent to get the return that I want, right? But we're not really taught to think about it like that, but that's the reality of it. So I negotiated a seller finance deal with them, like I do with all my deals as well. I don't go to banks. <laughs> they wanted $1.5 million for it initially, but then they had no accounting. Most of the old school landlords, they keep paper documents, they keep uh, money orders. And what I had to do was tell them, hey, I can't take this to the bank and get it financed. I need a trailing 12 or 24 months of CPA certified accounting to bring it to the bank. I don't have that with you. So I need to take about a quarter million dollars off of this price point and I need you to owner finance it to me. So I'll give you whatever percentage you want up front. And then the rest of it, um, after two years, I'll pay the balance off because then I can have those 24 months and I can build the value in and, you know, generate the revenue on the vacancies. So that's what I did. Did a crowdfund for that. We raised $1.1 million. Um, I took down the property they wanted 50% down. So I raised 1.1. So that's 600 grand. That left me with 500 grand in the bank to do the renovations on the vacant spaces. So that's how I renovated the units I turned into short-term rentals. And that's how I renovated the unit I turned into the short-term event space rental, which is the peer space that I gave a presentation about yesterday. Amazing, by the way. That was an amazing presentation. My negotiation with existing residents is I need you to be peaceful and quiet and keep everything neat and clean because that Airbnb guest and that Pure space guests is the reason why I don't have to raise your rent. And so they buy into it. That's my creative way of being a socially responsible investor in these communities that are going through a lot of redevelopment. And by the way, I bought it for 1.2. It already reappraised at $2 million, right? In a year. That's crazy. How many total units is that? Well, when I bought it, it was 19 houses and one commercial building, which used to be a restaurant. I just got the permits approved for the commercial building. That's going to be a short-term event space rental on Pure Space as well. So, But the the 19th house was a three-bed, two-bed house. That's the one I converted over to the other Pure Space. Love it. Love it. What's your plan moving forward? You're kind of dabbled in everything, man. Yeah. You've, you've, everything you touch seems like it's having success. Are you most bullish around the short-term rental space? Are you pivoting solely into peer space? Or what are you most excited about? I like having a, a mixed portfolio. And I kind of talked about this yesterday on stage. We got to think about real estate investing like we think about a stock portfolio. If I buy a property in this neighborhood that's got a long-term stable tenant, but the rent's low, it's like buying a CD or a bond. My return is low, but I know it's stable. It's a very low chance that the tenant that's been living there for 10 years is going to move out next week after I buy it, right? However, I can go take a vacant property and do something more risky with it. Maybe as risky as buying an option, right? Put a bunch of money into it or or leverage some money to go do a peer space. Peer space is the most risky side, which is the highest revenue. Then you come in the middle 
with the regular short-term rentals, where if you're in a market where there's some type of attractive feature of the of the area, so like this being close to downtown, not too far from the medical center, less than a mile from this big development, those are three different reasons why I know short-term rentals are going to be popular. I think COVID was the best thing to happen to short-term rentals because people are now socially engineered to stay out of hotels. So they want to stay in individual houses as much as possible, especially in Houston. It's actually a benefit for us because if you think about it, all the other areas of the country where short-term rental business went down, everybody was sick. We have the biggest medical center in the country. So everybody was yeah. coming to Houston because everybody was sick. So STRs are still doing pretty well. You know? Crazy. Yeah. Let's pivot just a little bit and elaborate for the audience, especially the ones that never heard of PeerSpace. What is PeerSpace and wh- why are you so excited about it? Okay, so, you know, when the short-term rental industry first started, you had all these platforms where everybody could rent a house for whatever they wanted, whether it was to spend the night or whether it was for to have a, to have a party or have a big gathering. Well, you know, as as HOAs cracked down, as uh, these platforms started feeling pressure from governments, they realized that they needed to restrict their operations, right? So now you Airbnb, you can't have parties at a lot of places. You know, it's very restricted. And But anybody knows as an entrepreneur, when there's a problem, when you bring a solution to the table, you can make a lot of money. You can corner the market. So the market for peer space is for people that want to rent a building or a house for anything else besides spending the night, right? And so it takes the event space model combines it with the typical VRBO Air, Airbnb model, and it, it's a win-win for everybody. What I like the most about it is people are used to paying hourly for events. People are also accustomed to paying nightly for a hotel. So when you take that model, you say, okay, well, if they're used to paying hourly and $100 an hour, doesn't sound crazy for an event. $100 an hour to rent a hotel sounds crazy. <laughs> it's a mesh of both worlds and I can use it for so many different things. So the design of my space is like every room looks different. Every wall looks different. So I get people that book it for photo shoots. I've had rappers use it for videos. I've had a family book it for a memorial service because the funeral home they wanted to go to was, wasn't wasn't available. Baby showers, birthday parties. I've had a teacher book it for a weekend for, I mean, a principal book it for a weekend for staff training. I've had the OWN Network use it twice for documentary interviews. Wow. I mean, anything you can think of. People book it for product placement. You got a book, you got a coffee bug. You want it in a nice setting and a nice photograph to put in the magazine or ad. People booking for that. Those are the best ones. They book that space for three hours, take a couple photos, and I still charge them $85 for a cleaning fee. And they don't, there's nothing done, nothing wrong. (laughs) That's crazy. So I just love the model. And so PeerSpace is one of the main platforms that has good search engine optimization. So when people Google event space or, you know, photo studio or things like that, they come up as a top search result. So that's what I like about it a lot. I'm a super host on there, just like on Airbnb. And so I'm on the first page. Um, So I get a lot of bookings, man. It's really good. So one of the problems that I would think that you would have is parking, right? So Mm -hmm. let's say you have 40 people for a graduation, for instance. What are you doing to combat that? Or have you found a solution? That's a great point. So luckily, where my property is, there's a couple of streets that have a lot of street parking that's available. And then there's a a church across the street that has a big parking lot. So I'll negotiate with them sometimes if they want to have direct parking, like close Mm -hmm. to, you know, I'll just pay the church or have the guests pay the church directly to use the parking lot. That's cool. Uh, The third option is bring in a valet service and outsource it. Bring the valet company in, take 10% of their profit. You make more money, actually. (laughs) So they can go park a couple blocks away wherever they want. And it's kind of a cooler experience, too. It's a better experience, yeah. Very cool. Always a solution. Always a solution. Every time. Never a problem, yeah. And that goes for everything, too. From the chefs, I outsource that. If people want to have food in, Uh, photographers, videographers, whatever whatever they want. You can outsource and just make more money with no overhead. Yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time underwriting deals, right? We look at Airbnb comps. We try to figure out how much money we can make on a property. 
For peer space, because it's so new, how do you determine a good property to buy or how much money it might make? You got to look at a peer space the same way you would kind of evaluate a commercial business. So you're looking at street traffic. You're like looking at access. It doesn't have to be in the best neighborhood. It could just be like a good point of destination. But they want to pull up and they don't want to feel like they're about to get robbed, of course. (laughs) (laughs) The houses that don't make good Airbnbs or short terminals are the best ones to convert over to that. Because that that means they're in a noisy area or high traffic area or it's not a lot of parking, it's not a backyard, whereas it may it will be undesirable for a short terminal. It, it could be very desirable because you're going to make it all inclusive and attractive on the inside. That's all people are going to be focused on. It has to be in a, a community or an area where there's a lot of commerce and enterprise, too. You're not going to put a photo studio in the middle of a small town where nobody's taking pictures, right? You're not going to do one that's focused on podcasts, but there's very low interest in that in that, in that area because it's maybe it's a farming town or something like that. Right. You know, just just different common sense things that you, that you have to apply. Like, so there's some of them that in the city, they do them themed just like they do short-term rentals. The ones that are really popular are the very girly pink houses and all that kind of stuff because they get... They stay booked up for like photo shoots and all that kind of stuff. Bachelorette parties or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Video shoots and all kind of stuff like that. A lot of the, uh, here's something else. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> all the gyms. <laughs> Airbnb has banned OnlyFans. So I know a lot of guys oh, that have wow. peer space studios specifically for the OnlyFans girls. Wow. So, and they go from, from house to house in different different units because they get different setups in every one. Yeah, go and shoot it for three hours and make $500 off of $125 an hour. Crazy. We look at a long-term rental, right? And and maybe you can make three to four X on a short-term rental. Now, do you think you can maybe make 10 X on peer space or double what you can make on Airbnb? How are you kind of projecting the Definitely. revenue? So I, I don't like to talk in theory. I like to talk about real data. So in my presentation, I showed this weekend, uh, yesterday and today in my Airbnb, which is a 1,480 square foot, three bedroom, two bath house, two nights, my total net is $379. Right now, Today in my peer space, a 1,500 square foot, three bed, two bath house, three blocks away. While we're talking, I'm making $569 for a booking from 1 to 6 p.m. So that right there tells you I'm doubling in six hours what it takes me two days to make with the Airbnb. Today is only one booking. Sometimes I showed a case where I had three bookings in one day. I made $1,260 in one day. So wow. yes, twelve sixty versus the Airbnb that I'm charging one thirty a night for. So yes, you can you can do way more than four or five times X. It's all about the consist- consistency. What I haven't done is the scaling up of the marketing to increase the amount of bookings because I wanted to learn the business really well for the first year. But because you know that that can be your biggest bottleneck if you can't handle the amount of the demand you have on the business. Now that I've outsourced the management of it, um, I can focus more on scaling and, and bo- having it booked up more during the week. And then the other thing is you can bring in supplementary income to it too. So we're on a podcast. I have a podcast studio that's like an in-house resident. So they have four or five clients that they shoot different podcasts for inside my peer space when it's not booked for actual peer space bookings. So I make like another thousand, fifteen hundred dollars a month or stuff of that. So this one house. Brilliant. So let's let's walk through the steps. If it was a rental, a regular rental in that neighborhood, market rents is seventeen fifty. Airbnb, well, let's let's take a step back. Office space. If I rent it to like a doctor or a lawyer, chiropractor that, you know, the people that can use houses as office space, maybe twenty five hundred dollars a month. Airbnb, maybe thirty five hundred. This peer space, my average month is forty five hundred. I've had months as big as ten thousand. That's wow. crazy. And it's not even booked every day. It's yeah. like just like the weekends really booked and a couple of bookings during the week. That's so, all you need though. That's all you need. So do you see this, you know, becoming so popular to where people are gonna, you know, try to do the arbitrage model with peer space? So I'm thinking mm-hmm. 
a 10 unit building sitting vacant for a while, mm-hmm. you can negotiate owner finance or yeah. you can just say, hey, can I rent all 10 spaces mm-hmm. and then convert them all to peer space? Yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah. Each one have, have a different theme. Exactly. Yeah. Like I'm one's working, a I'm, podcast I'm, studio. One's exactly. I'm whatever. working on one now, which is going to have one big digital wall. So people want to throw what type of event or party for presentations or for a party. You just want to have like a nice visual wall with like videos playing or pictures playing. Wow. All kind of simple things like that. And then you just put some LED lights that you can program to change colors in the room and they bring in their own. Oh, that's another one. Uh, interior decorators for the parties. Mm-hmm. That's another another big revenue stream. There's so many different ways to make money with it. And then I was talking to uh, one of the guys here. He's actually one of my real estate attorneys. Very nice title company. Off. I was telling him, man, you should put this on Peer Space after hours. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. I mean, people that want to have meetings in a nice office setting. Absolutely. Or people that may want to shoot a scene for a movie or have a photo shoot at, in a nice office. You know, you can do that too. So that, that, it can supplement any business. But you're right. In, anywhere you see a bunch of vacant commercial space, that's really ideal because they have parking requirements. So it's easy to to accommodate those types of uh, uses for the venue. So it's tons of opportunity there. Yeah, and mo- most of the time they're they're struggling yes. to get anyone in there, exactly. right? So exactly. it doesn't work any, any other way. Now the killer combination, when I'm working on one of my projects that I have in the pipeline, I have a property that has a two-bed, one-bath house that I'm, I'm going to convert over to a peer space, but on the same property, it's four fourplexes. Mm. So now turn it into a short-term rental complex. So now you're thinking destination event, right? Like bridal parties or, or bachelor parties, any type of event where you need a, a training space and you want to book the rest of it out to have your your family, your friends, your staff all on one in one compound. Mixed, next mixed level. Way. Yeah, next level. We are thrilled to announce Blue Gems Management. After building out 24 short-term rental properties of our own, we're now helping other investors buy their time back. With over 300 five-star reviews, we really understand the importance of guest experience. If you're interested in making short-term rentals passive, click the link in the show notes below and someone from our team will contact you soon. Now back to the show. So say we want to get on peer space, right? What are some key differences that we need to do to get our property peer space ready mm-hmm. instead of putting it on Airbnb? Great point. So I would say I spent about 30% more on the renovations of the peer space than I did on the short terminal. Um, specifically because it has to be something that says, damn, I want to be there. So the entrance, the hallway that I have in my entrance uh, to my peer space, it's got the original hardwood floors from the house built in 1925. I resurfaced them. On the walls, I spent like 15 grand doing this mirror mosaic tile. But when when you walk in, the impression is like, damn, this is this is pretty dope. <laughs> so the ceiling is the the old original shiplap. I just stained it, but I put recessed lighting in it. So the lighting effect from the LED lights shining against the mirror walls, like everybody's like, wow, this is amazing. And you don't expect it from the outside. And then you go in the back room. I got some custom wallpaper that's like single line art of faces that I import that I had to order from Europe, came over here. Other walls, I have those different panels that have the different textures on them. So every room looks completely different. Furniture is different in every room. So it does cost a lot more. And then I invested in commercial grade furniture. So like the type of furniture that's in the hotel lobby. Dur- very durable leather, things that, you know, a lot of people are going to be in on Airbnb. Doesn't have to be as durable. But those types of investments on the front end really make it appealing. Everybody that sees it online says, wow, it looks even better in person. And all the reviews are five-star reviews. All their guests love. People like to impress their guests, right? So if you have a design right, that's going to happen consistently. And you wear them out. The guests see it, and they want to use it for something, right? Same thing with Airbnb. Same type of model, but it works works really well in this this arena. Uh, But in contrast, the short-term rental that's the Airbnb in the neighborhood makes me about 25 a year. 
you know, with the occupancy right now, it, I think it's going to be higher once that development is done. But 25000 30000 a year max. Uh, last year with the Pierce Space House, I made like 68000 That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What was your occupancy on that, if you if you um, recall? On the peer space, you know, it's I would say it was still vacant three to four days a week. So less than less than 50% occupancy. Okay, because that's something that we're, you know, yeah. we have reservations about. We're like, <laughs> yeah, it seems like there's not going to be that many bookings. But like you said, yeah. to elaborate on your point, you right. really don't have to have you don't a have lot to, of bookings. Yeah, you don't have to. I mean, it's some weekends where I'll have somebody will book it from 8 to 4, and I'll have somebody book it from... 7 to 2 a.m. Yeah. Well, shit, that makes up for a whole week of really short-term rentals. Yeah. Right? That's $1,200, $1,200 in a day. You do that two days in a row, that's $2,500 in one weekend. That's right? crazy. Yep. So you it can, you can really have a quickly. week with no bookings at all still be okay. <laughs> so I would assume, and I, I've never used PeerSpace. Yeah. I, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. I've dabbled on the platform a little bit, mm-hmm. but you know your competition, right? Because yeah. it's so so small of a market, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Now, how many competitors do you have in the vicinity of, I would say, 10 miles? Three. Three, okay. And it's, it's, it's three, but the, my nicest competition doesn't even do parties. He only likes to do photo shoots, video shoots, and small meetings. Gotcha. So it, it it's a wide open market. Wow. Super, and this is Houston, the fourth largest U.S. city. Yeah, I was going to say, in comparison right. to that same 10-mile radius, how yes. many STRs are there? Oh, yeah, at least at least 150. Yeah, so. Literally, from where we are, if we go to my peer space, it takes about four minutes. Yeah. Right by downtown. And then from the marketing perspective, do you see yourself spending a lot and maybe going off platform because a lot of people don't maybe know about peer space. So where do you see the demand coming from in the future? Uh, that, that's the thing. I, I haven't marketed at all right now. I mean, like I said, I just depend on their platform SEO so far. Now, if I invested in marketing, I'm pretty sure the revenue could 2x because wow. I'll get it booked during the week. I probably could lower the rate a little bit. Right now, I have it at $95 an hour and like $120 cleaning fee most of the time. But if I lower it to like $60 during the week, I'm pretty sure I can get a lot more bookings that way um, and then start marketing. It, it has a social media Page. I don't really push the social media page yet, but I have a large social media following over 100,000. So a lot of people here, they just affiliating themselves with other real estate investors, you know. So I know if I even if I push it on my platform, I can get a lot more bookings too. But it's just one of those things where I wanted to make sure I made it to Superhost. I wanted to make sure I had five star reviews before I, I get too deep into it. And when, sometimes when you rush, you fumble. And I, I just didn't want to fumble. What are some challenges that you faced, you know, when building out this peer space, you know, whether it was problems with listing it on peer space, was that difficulty? Like VRBO, I don't know if you've used VRBO, but man, it's kind of a headache, right? Booking.com is even worse. Yeah. Is peer space easy to use? What what reservations or difficulties it's, you have? It, it's a very cumbersome process because you basically have to set it up for each type of use. So there's the same house, I have to put it on one that's for like studio rentals, one for event spaces, and then one for office spaces. So you, it's very redundant. You have to go through it three times. They don't have an ability for you to co-host yet, which sucks. So yeah. I have to give my property manager access to my account directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a challenge that I, 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 they haven't really figured out yet. Other than that, it's a pretty straightforward platform itself. Now, when it comes to the space, one of the biggest things that I didn't account for was the AC system. You have five or six guests in a house with the doors closed all day. Your AC system can be typical. You throw in an event where people have the doors open all the time. You have to have a much stronger AC system, much more robust. Mm-hmm. So I started getting complaints last summer about it always being hot in the building. Well, that's because the caterers and the interior decorators left the doors open for 45 minutes in the middle of Houston heat yeah. while they're loading stuff in and loading stuff out. Now the AC can't catch up. Right. So it's things like that that I, I learned the hard way. I had a the type of stove that I put into the short-term rentals doesn't get as much use as the one that I have in the peer space. People bring their caterer and their caterer is cooking. You know, people don't take care of other 
people's stuff like they do their own, you know? Yeah. So I've had to change the stove out a couple of times and a guest will come in there and complain because the oven wasn't working because the pilot went out. Just things like that that you have to pay more attention to detail on. But, I mean, that's offset by the fact that there's nobody spending the night. Yeah. I don't have to worry about somebody saying the sheets are dirty or the dishes aren't clean. Or So I think it's a fair trade. If I had to pick a poison, I'm going to continue with the poison <laughs> that I have right now. Yeah, with definitely. The pure space. Yeah. What's next? What are you up to now? What are you most excited about? All that good stuff. The second pure space that I'm going to have is the commercial building I had next door. It took me a year to get the permits approved, number one, because I didn't have enough parking. So we finally found a way around that. I got it approved as a white box kind of community center for my residents, which is an approved use for low parking requirements. And then I'm just going to say I'm, I increase the revenue on the off hours by using it as a pure space, which I'm really going to do. And then outside of that, I have a bigger project right up the street where I was able to acquire a 5.3 acre church site that's right at the intersection of uh, Highway 59 and I-10 right across the freeway from that $2.4 billion development. <laughs> so I'm smart man. Yeah. So once again, I did partial seller finance and I got the church to finance some of it. I raised about $1.2 million in cash. And then I had a bank put up about $4.3 million to take down a $6.7 million acquisition to, to buy that property. And the great part is they only wanted to sell it at full appraised value. They had it appraised as a church. Appraisal came back at 6.7. After nine months of owning it, I went back to the commercial appraiser. I said, hey, can you reappraise this for me for land value only, not improvement, but land value for multifamily development? Appraisal came back at 8.65 million. My man. Changing some paperwork, $1.9 million just came out of the air. That is crazy. So on that site, we are. I'm partnering with the Houston Housing Authority. We're going to do a 340-unit apartment complex. Half of it's going to be market rate rents. The other half will be 80% of the market rent. I'm going to have 10%. That's going to be a 60% of market rent, but I'm going to target entrepreneurs for that. Because when we think about low-income housing, it's always, everybody forgets about the people that make $30,000, $40,000 on a tax return, but they're actually trying to grow a business, right? And that's the ones I really want back in the community. If they're there living in the, the same building with all the other successful people, they're, they're around like-minded individuals and they're growing their business in the community. They're creating jobs in the community. So it's a win-win for everybody. Love so that. I have like 5,000 square feet of commercial space. Part of it is going to be a pure space. <laughs> it's going to be more of a, uh, it's going to be set up more like a, a conference center training room kind of thing. And, uh, but it'll be available on pure space too for bookings, for, for training sessions and all that kind of stuff. And then on the north end of the campus, I'm bringing a charter school. So I'm not, I'm just going to be selling them the land. They're going to develop their own campus, but they have 27 campuses already. Pretty cool. They're backed by the Watson Family Foundation. Man, that's exciting. Like, really strong, really strong. Yeah. So just, man, just doing more creative stuff like this and showing other people how to do it. That, yeah. This is, this is my focus. It's like, you can go into any neighborhood that's going through redevelopment and start giving us investors a better name. You know, like a better image to the community. Do everything I'm doing. I'm, I'm giving you the full blueprint. Buy the stuff that's already occupied. Try not to raise their rents too much. Buy the vacant ones. Make them short-term rentals. Buy the other vacant ones that aren't good for short-term rentals. Make them peer space. Now you look at your ROI on your whole portfolio, you're still good. You know, but it, it's it's a diversified approach. And just teaching people how to do that in other cities, that's really my focus. Love it, man. Create the blueprint. Amazing. Amazing. Inspiring. We have a lot of newer investors just starting out as our audience. What would be your advice for them just getting in the game? So I tell people this. This is my success triangle after I've had restaurants, all different types of real estate deals. And I realized there's three things that you need to be successful at anything you do. You need knowledge and experience. You need the opportunity. And then you need the money. School has taught us that you have to come to the table with all three. The cheat code and entrepreneurship and businesses come to the table with one and partner with the people that have the other two. So if you want to go get the knowledge and experience, you know, pay for some courses, learn that stuff, and then you have a basis for the knowledge, but then you're going to have to go partner with somebody that knows how to find deals. That's the opportunity. Then you, with the, the amount of knowledge and experience you have, that person with the opportunity, y'all two collectively go get the money. 
Or you go find an opportunity and you go to somebody that's been doing it for a long time and say, hey, does this make sense? And if that person with the knowledge and experience says, oh, that makes sense, I'll get into this with you, then y'all go get the money. Maybe you have the money. Then you're going to go partner with somebody that's got knowledge and experience and say, hey, go help me find the opportunity. That's your cheat code to be successful in whatever you want to do. Don't be afraid to pay for the knowledge and experience because schools also conditioned us that the people that are the best are the ones that are right more than 90% of the time, which is false. That means the A students, right? In the real world, you can fail a whole lot more than 10% and still be very successful. In the real world, you can copy off of somebody and cheat off of somebody (laughs) and be very successful. It's okay to be a copycat, just copy the right cat, right? So we have to retrain the way we think about a lot of things if you want to be successful. If you're going to try to figure it out on your own, you're going to spend way more time, energy, effort. You're going to have a lot more failures, a lot more frustration, and you might quit because you're being selfish, greedy, or you're conditioned to say it doesn't mean as much if you don't figure out on your own, right? In the real world, it should be no. Let me go pay this guy who's already failed because I have no idea how much time I'm going to lose, how much money I'm going to lose if I try to figure out on my own. Let me just pay him. I know what my cost is. I know he's going to help me uh, or she's going to help me avoid pitfalls that I might not even see coming. And that's my shortcut to success. Great answer, bro. <laughs> Amazing. I'm over here taking notes. So what does a day in the life look like for you now? I wake up usually about 8.30, <laughs> look at my phone, make sure I didn't miss any text messages or emails, maybe go back to sleep for an hour. And then by like 10, 10.30, checking on my projects, checking in with my property manager, talking to my development partners on the deal as we're negotiating different things uh, as far as like service providers, like the engineers, the architects for those type of projects or pushing them further along, making sure uh, we're getting our design stuff done as needed to move through the permit process because on these big multifamily projects, it's like eight to nine months strictly of design before you can even go to permits and all this kind of stuff. People are calling me with other opportunities and deals. I'm a briefly looking at them and deciding if they're worth my time. I have two guys that work under me. I'm dividing some of the opportunities up amongst them for them to review. Some days it's troubleshooting, uh, dealing with issues with the short-term rental or the uh, the peer space, you know, but no two days are the same. No two days are, are ever the same. Love that, man. And then last question, if you could pick any one gym to leave with the audience, it could be about business, it could be about scaling, about creativity, Life in general, anything, what would you want to leave? Find purpose. My first mentor, I can, I'll never forget this. I was 27 and this guy was making $200,000 a month between his net profit from his construction business and his rental properties. And he's like, he told me, he said, Chris, I wake up every morning and I pray that I can make as much money as my friends. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, my friend makes $2 million a month. And this is a guy named Mac Hike who owns like a ton of car dealerships, in Houston, he owns like a bunch of commercial buildings. His tenants are like Shell and Chevron. And I'm like, damn, you will always be chasing money if you don't find yourself in a place where you enjoy what you do and you feel like you have purpose there. Yeah. Uh, you're never going to be happy. I look at the world and we look at who everybody says has it the easiest. Everybody says the white male has it the easiest. Well, the two white males that come to mind all the time that you would think would be the epitome of what everybody strives for committed suicide. Robin Williams and Anthony Bourdain. So that tells you, if you're not happy with your life and what you're doing, it doesn't matter where you come up in that socioeconomic cycle or, you know, how how everything's perceived to the rest of the world. You got to find purpose and you got to have internal peace and happiness. Money won't make you happy. The things you're doing won't make you happy. Uh, It's much deeper than that. Man, beautiful, bro. Appreciate (laughs) you, man. Thank you so much. Awesome episode, bro. If you're interested in scaling your short-term rental portfolio, 
and networking with like-minded individuals, we host a short-term rental meetup once a month in downtown Orlando. Click our link below in the show notes to register. See you at the next one. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.